Hi folks, welcome to Crossing the Threshold. I'm Max and with me is Nikki. Join us as we sit down with leading thinkers from around the world of education, exploring how the ways that we're supporting young people today is shaping the future of our society. This week on the show, I was lucky enough to sit down, albeit virtually, with Hannah Wilson. Hannah is an educational consultant specialising in leadership development and teacher training. She's an activist in education and is tireless in her drive to change the way that we're educating. She's founded and continues to lead on a number of incredible grassroots networks such as Women Ed and Diversity Ed, paving the way for a more just education system. Hannah was the founding head teacher of two startup schools, one primary and one secondary. She's passionate about integrity, ethics, and bringing values to the heart of the way we're educating. Anyway, that's enough from me. Let's dive in. Welcome to the show, Hannah. Great to have you on. How's your day going today? It's going really well, thank you. I've had a, I've had a positive morning. Fantastic. And uh, tell us, where, whereabouts in the UK are you at the moment? I am based in South Oxfordshire, um, Sunny Digcott. Mm, very nice, very nice. And is that where you've been spending lockdown? It is, yes. So I, I left London um, a couple of years ago to move out to Oxfordshire and I bought a new house last year. So yeah, I feel quite fortunate that I've spent lockdown in my relatively new house. I've got a garden, I've got a lot more space than I had a couple of years ago when I lived in an urban environment. Mm, London doesn't really lend itself to having a lot of space, does it? Indeed not. <laughs> well, listen, I was really excited to have you on the show um, because... You know, the work you've been doing is really, you know, being ahead, starting uh, two schools, training teachers, starting women ed and diverse ed movements, and the list goes on. Uh, I think you've got a really interesting perspective on what education uh, is doing well and what, you know, what it could be doing better. I think just exploring that on the show today would be really interesting for our listeners. Brilliant. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Lots indeed. to talk about. <laughs> um, I was curious to start by just asking about your kind of your journey into education and how you, yeah, where, where it all started and where the where the passion comes from. I guess it's, it's an interesting question. I get asked a lot. Um, why did I become a teacher? And it, I didn't think I was going to be a teacher when I was a kid. Um, I thought I was going to be a journalist or go into some of the kind of the media creative industries, but. I did a year working in London and I didn't like the office environment. I was working in a in a publishing company and it just didn't serve me. I didn't want to be in an office environment. So I was re-evaluating with, with an English degree. So I, I did a post-colonial literature degree. Um, what could I do? And there was a massive recruitment campaign back then. It was like 2002. Um, there was a lack of English and MFL and maths teachers. So I hate to say I went into teaching because of the money, because people don't think about teaching as being a, a lucrative career. But there was a lot of incentives back then to train to teach in those shortage subjects. And I saw it as an opportunity to get a, a profession and a skill that might become my plan B in the future. But equally, one that I wanted. To, I was quite interested in travel journalism and I wanted to travel and work and I saw it as a vehicle. Actually, it's a transferable skill to go anywhere in the world with. And um, so that was kind of my why for falling into teaching. But it is, it is vocational and it is like, if you don't love it, you don't stay in teaching. That's the bottom line. And I really enjoyed my PGCE. I was down in Canterbury at the time. So I did a PCE in um, secondary English with drama and media. And then I took on my NQT year down in Kent I don't know, it's not really felt like work. And that's crazy because teaching is really full on. It's really hard. But, but I've always really enjoyed it. And then I moved to London in my third year and my career picked up quite a pace then. And I've I worked in three different schools in um, South London. 
picked up responsibility every year. Like when you're working in challenging schools and you can hold your own and you're resilient, you get you get pushed on quite quickly. So I had quite a linear, quite accelerated um, trajectory where I found myself at SLT quite quickly and I was an assistant head with the kind of the remit of the arts and enrichment and aim higher and university pathways and more able and all the kind of things that was really exciting. Then I became deputy head in a in a school that needed turning around. Went to um, lead a teaching school and lead professional learning. And at that point, everyone's saying to me, "When are you going to be a head?" And I had I hadn't at that point. I was well, year fifteen. I hadn't really sort of like crystallised that I wanted to be a head. But th- what I kept hearing was, well, why are you working so hard then? Mm-hmm. If you don't want to be a head, why, why are you investing so much time and energy in your career? I just think that's the work ethic I've been brought up with. So then I kind of reflected on what was holding me back. And I think the thing that was holding me back at that point in my head was the fact that I didn't see female role models around me who were married with children and being heads. And I had this sense of if I became a head, I wouldn't get married and have children and it would be a disabler in my personal life. And I think I was holding myself back. But ultimately, I, I am still married and I have got children. Doing this isn't about my career. It's about other factors in my life. So I did take the leap of faith and I applied for a headship. But I thought quite carefully about the kind of headship I wanted. And I was ready to leave London. I'd done like 12 years in London at this point. I was looking to move back towards the West Country because my family are based in Devon. And this job came up being the head of a startup school in Oxfordshire. And it just really appealed to me. And the reason why it appealed to me goes back to your original question. During my vision for education... The fact that I've worked in so many schools where you're always fixing the problems, like you're coming in and you're reactive to a systemic or structural issue and it's like the school's failing and we've got to turn things around quickly. The year 11s have got to pass. It's kind of like all hands on the deck. And being the head of a startup school, I felt was a great opportunity to have a, a worksheet of paper in front of you and a bit more time behind you to make decisions about the long game rather than the short game. Um, and I recruited a team who were all really up for collectively sharing a vision of value set, but equally innovating how we do things. So, for example, we had a pledge for mindfulness. So all of our children did mindfulness every single morning. With just year sevens, just one year group, that was saying we could embed every year and roll it up. Whereas if I'd been the head of a school with 1,200 kids and year 11 sitting GCSEs, I would have perhaps taken a different tact. Um, so that was kind of how I fell into headship. Did, did a year um, starting up a secondary school, then got asked to take on the primary school, started a primary school with a very similar culture and ethos and value set. And then in my third year, I just realised that although I'd got to the top of the ladder, was I truly fulfilled? Like, was I fulfilling my potential and my purpose? And was I really happy? And I I was beginning to feel quite handcuffed by the system and from working in a group of schools that that perhaps I wasn't as aligned with as I thought I was initially. So I decided to resign from headship because I don't don't think it's a job you can do if you're not 100% in it. Um, And although there was lots of the role I absolutely loved, I was getting more and more frustrated. And then when you're frustrated, that then affects your well-being and your resilience and everything Mm -hmm. else. So I resigned last June um, and I've been on quite a journey ever since about like, what's my identity now? Because when you've been a teacher for 18 years, that is very much part of your identity and how you define yourself. And like when I introduce myself to people now, I can't say I'm a teacher. 
And there's an argument that I can because I'm qualified and I spent 18 years. So I now reframe it that I'm, I'm an educator because I'm still within the education system and I'm still adding value and contributing, but I'm not a teacher um, and I'm really mindful of that. So that's the kind of the not so short story mm-hmm. of how I ended up in Oxfordshire um, and I'm now working independently. Amazing. Quite a journey. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. Quite that. a journey, yes. Quite, yeah, we're 18 years. It's, it's funny. It see, in some ways, it seems quite a long journey. In other ways, it seems like it's gone quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess it, when we reflect on time, it often has that perspective, doesn't it? Um, it's interesting to hear you talk about your kind of your connection to your life purpose or your purpose in work, and um, because we do associate education as ha- being very mission led and values driven, and where that purpose comes from is always a, is always an interesting inquiry. I find. Yeah, and absolutely, and like I said, I fell into teaching, but then it it felt right um and I've got a real sense of social justice in me uh, and I think that came from the fact that the local schools when I was growing up weren't particularly good in North Devon and my parents made the decision to send my sister and I to a private school and I, I wasn't happy and I had a bit of a hissy fit about the fact that my parents were going to send me to a private school and we went back and forth about it they were adamant it was the right path for me and I spent five years there and I, d- I did well but I did massively enjoy it at the end of my GCSEs, I said, I'm going to college now. Like, no argument. I'm 16. I'm doing what I want. Um, and I think that's just really stayed with me. And it's interesting, like, in my 30s and now early 40s, lots of my um, friends from university, colleagues, it's like it, they aspire to being of the ilk where they've got enough money in the bank to pay for their kids to go to private school. And, and I challenge that all the time with my friends about the fact that the best thing you can do to help improve the education system is go and be a governor. Go and go and sort of go and volunteer in that community and help turn that school down the road from you around, and don't sell out and send your kids to a private school. And I get the challenge back. We haven't got kids, Hannah. It's different, um, <laughs> and I and I get that. But my thing is about how we can all contribute to improving the system for all. Um, and I think a lot in the kind of the lens of equalities and equities and meritocracy, um, and making sure that there is equality of opportunity for all and not just not just a few. Mm. Yeah, definitely. So what do you feel is education's role in, in tackling those, you know, those kind of more systemic injustices? Well, that's, it's a really good question because it's a bit like chicken and egg, isn't it? Like, my thing is, that as a head, we created a values-based school. So it was, it was our pledge that we wanted values to be the pillars of our school. And most schools would say they've got values. But in a lot of schools, you have values that are written about and talked about, but they're not actually lived. And we made sure that our values were very much embedded within the culture and ethos of the school but also the curriculum and there were like teachable moments every single day for us to revisit our 12 school values so I had year sevens like 12 year olds who could do assemblies on the difference between equality and equity and like just how articulate they were and emotionally literate and that sense of them being global citizens and having a responsibility to the world and I'm really excited to see them in 10 years time when they finish university and they're part of the community and they're the new leaders and the new generation and I and I feel like there's a piece of what is a cyclical process and we've got things we need to change right now but we also need to be disrupting and changing the rhetoric and the narrative and the journey because if we keep doing the same things we're going to keep getting the same outcomes and the language I used to use as a head all the time was we were consciously like preemptive proactive and preventative rather than being what I'd been trained to be in the institutionalization of school improvement like reactive responsive and kind of like always on your back foot and I, and I feel like we need to turn things on its head and like I'm excited about what is going on right now because I feel like this disruption is 
a massive disruption to the education system and we needed it and we needed time and we needed a pause and we needed an opportunity to strip back and really think about like we're doing things we've been doing now for 10 20 30 years like I was taught the same text my dad was taught and I taught the same text my dad taught was taught and I, and I feel like there's never the time to step back and objectify and ask the bigger questions and I know that a lot of my colleagues are super stressed right now reacting to the government and and keeping schools open and, and keeping people safe but I do think at the same time there's been an opportunity to reflect and to ask some of those bigger questions and to and to make some decisions but equally to push back a little bit and I feel like because the government haven't really taken true accountability for education during the pandemic I feel like there's been a lot of passing on the bark and it's fallen on the heads and the shoulders of the head teachers in some ways that's actually empowered them and it's actually empowered a lot of head teachers to step up and say this is my school it's my community you can't tell me what to do and I feel like there's actually a, a surge of of kind of like empowered educational leaders um, who although their resilience is low because of everything they've had to carry emotionally for the last 10 weeks at the same time, um, there's a there's a sense of they're the experts and they're the ones with the experience to make these these bold decisions. So I, I am quite excited at just the opportunities that are arising right now for the system, um, and I and I feel like that we need to grasp them and we need to lean into this time and not regret in a couple of years time that we had the opportunity to do things differently and we just carried on mm. as as we were. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's definitely lots of conversation on the social sphere around using this, you know, using lockdown and the pandemic to radically change things. Mm. Um, I'm curious about how much people will be able to to do versus how much kind of going back to normal there will be. And you know, there are pressures on people at the moment. People are having really difficult experiences of lockdown, and there's going to be a lot of. Um, need to go back to some sort of routine and safety back in school uh, especially for, for certain families and certain students and I wonder how much we'll be able to actually really kind of take on some of the big dreams that we have that are quite radical um, you know, potentially quite radically shifting the system. Mm. I, I think it will depend on priorities and I, and I think I think in some ways I'm excited because there's an opportunity for creativity and growth and innovation but at the same time, it could create quite a disparate system. We're already quite fractured. Like education, since it's been academised and gone into academy groups rather than um, LEAs, there's already a sense that it's, it's quite a fragmented system and we need more coherence and more cohesion. Um, and I feel like at the moment, how schools are responding to the transition back into school being resumed is so different that, that normally there is a kind of a daily diet and there's a commonality and a shared what's happening in most schools but from the people I'm talking to I don't know we could be getting off on completely different pathways at the moment but I feel like there's things that we can't change so like I'm currently doing uh, my MA and researching flexible working and there's been a big push um, from the people like the women in the system in particular um, that as a profession we need to be more flexible and we are one of the least flexible systems which is crazy when we are looking after everyone else's children and enabling them to be flexible and this is kind of like dissonance or dichotomy and tension and overnight the business case went 
like overnight in eight days, like literally in a matter of days, every single school in the country had to lean into remote working, flexible working, online teaching, and all the barriers and all the obstacles that had been put in people's ways for years as to why they couldn't work flexibly and remotely. That business case has been imploded. And I feel like there's the same to harness there around the fact that we've now got different working practices and routines and a different perspective, perhaps, about how we can flip meetings and do online learning. And, and we don't have to be in the building from eight in the morning till five at night to prove our worth. So, and, I feel, and I feel like there could be a real surge of people applying for flexible working, but with hard evidence now to leverage it. And I also think that just from the well-being fallout of what's been going on, um, some some teachers and some leaders won't want to return full-time um, and it'll be a retention tool to keep them in a flexible way. But equally, we've got hundreds of thousands of teachers in the country who are qualified who aren't working in our schools right now and their livelihoods could have been detrimentally impacted in the last few months because what they normally do won't have been earning them a living and they might want to be returning to the system but they want to return to flexible roles and I feel like we've got an ongoing educational recruitment and retention crisis it's really a talent management crisis and I feel like we're going to have to look differently at how we recruit and retain teachers because we've already got vacancies that we can't fill and like quotas not being met with people at different tiers so I, I feel like there won't be much choice we're going to have to embrace that and I, and I think that's quite uh, a positive for the system mm, yeah definitely it's interesting there's so much we could focus on changing I think for me there's the thing that when I think about what could change or what we could focus on changing the thing that always comes back to my kind of center of attention is exams and the you know the massive focus on exams and mm. i know there are a lot of school leaders out there using this as like you know we've got two whole year groups gcse and a levels who have um, and you know and more that uh, have really struggled uh, or have been re- massively impacted by this uh, this year and actually that provides an opportunity to prove the value of their education in ways other than those exams absolutely so i think accountability is something that will be disrupted between i think the kind of the assessment frameworks which weren't really fit for purpose and a lot there's been a lot of pressure from the system to the government for a long time that the results reporting at key stage two key stage four um, and key stage five is no longer really serving its purpose and i think it'll be very hard for the government to reapply those previous systems and pressures when we haven't done it now um and secondary to that there's been a big a big narrative and rhetoric around um inspections and how schools are compared and judged and during at the moment there's been back and forth about the suspension of inspections moving forward um and they're they're two of the things that create the biggest toxic stress in schools the kind of the constant marking assessing reporting um and children being judged on a snapshot in a 45-minute exam rather than a five-year education or more. Um, and equally the same for inspections and how you can have good days and bad days and how uh, an officer inspection doesn't always reflect the true spirit and impact of a school. So, Dreen, I think that's two welcome changes. I think there's a fear that they will be returned, but I think there will be an absolute riot <laughs> if, if they if they return in the same way um and i think i'm hoping that going back to that kind of the empowerment of the school leaders in the system that, that perhaps um 
there'll be more of a collective endeavor to stand up and 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 sort of like vocalize what's not right and what's not there's been a lot of grassroots campaigns in the last few years um but i feel like there could be a, real, a very strong um standoff with education about those two things in particular mm. yeah i guess that that makes me think of the amazing work you do around teacher kind of mobilizing teachers into uh, speaking their voice you know particularly educators from diverse backgrounds and women uh, I've enjoyed how uh, on your blog you've started uh, the everyday uh, values um, posting where every day you invite educators to share a blog post about a particular value and it makes me think about yeah the role of the educator like you say there's te- they're teachers but they're much more than that uh, you know they're educators and they, they share so much of themselves with students and by sharing what it is they value and um, sharing their, their personalities they bring so much to the lives of those they're educating and I was just I was just reflecting on how we can how amazing it is that you're mobilizing their voices to talk about their experiences and for that to kind of be part of the narrative of where education is going it, it's so interesting isn't it because when you start things you don't always see them through the lens that other people see them and I mean I, I started the daily writing challenge as a, a cathartic thing to do during stressful times so like different people do different things like my creativity flow is I like to write and that's how I reflect and process my emotions so in a, in a slightly selfish way I mean the daily writing challenge was my way of coping with lockdown and I talked to a few people about it they were like that's a great idea and I just put out I'm gonna do this who wants to join me I didn't quite expect the traction of like 90 people um getting involved with the writing and hundreds of, like one of my one of them's been written by um, read by like 600 people um and I, I didn't quite expect that traction I guess um but then when you think when you sit back and think about it then we have done similar things with that in the past of just going out to Twitter and putting an idea out there and people grabbing hold of it and communities being formed and there is that sense of voice and agency um the the grassroots movements are really exciting because in some ways in schools there's a disempowerment and disenfranchisement of, of educators feeling like it's always top down and it's hierarchical decision making um and there's been a massive grassroots movement about um sort of like staff development that we choose to do for ourselves by ourselves at weekends and there's lots of critique about saturday unconferences but actually i've gained loads from it um and lots of people have gained loads from it so yeah, like, do you mean, I think the whole piece around the values was the fact that I have I got involved as a, a head with Values-Based Education, who are an organisation that kind of like brings schools together, who really put values at the centre of their schools. Um, and I, it's it's really a kind of a, a vocabulary you need to learn. Like it's an emotional literacy, the way you can articulate your values. And through coaching and through that work with VBE, and through reflections, what I realised was all of my stressful points of my career and all the reasons why I've left jobs has, be- has been because my values have been compromised and my values have been clashing with the culture I find myself in. And at that moment, in that stressful moment, you can't step back and say, well, my value of is being compromised by. You just realise you're unhappy. So when I'm mm. unhappy, I leave. Um, and through coaching, I realised that actually that was the commonality and the kind of the trend and the pattern in my journey. And I, and I do resign quite a lot. Like it's a bit of a joke that when, when I'm not happy, I resign. I find another job. I'm not, <laughs> I'm, not sca- I'm not scared. I always find another job. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a piece there about the fact that I didn't have that until 
like 14 years into my career, like as part of my teacher training in my early career, values weren't a currency, they weren't really a language. I'm not religious. I was brought up in a household with like strong morals and principles and values, but we didn't talk about them. They were kind of an unspoken thing. And I think what's happened to me over the last few years is that that kind of coaching and that dialogue has excavated my values and my values have kind of come to the surface. And I'm just really clear on my values and who I am and what I stand for and what I believe in. And that clarity has really helped me. So I want to then help other people find that clarity. Mm. It's interesting about this this question of values in education because from the work we do at the Visionaries, values is inherent in our reason for for existing as an organisation. And we're really encouraging schools to bring values to life in the way that they, in, in relationships, in helping students to really understand their identity uh, and, the, you know, and the values that are linked to that. And it seems, you know, in, in lots of cases, the system puts kind of, draws a lot of attention uh, that perhaps leaves less space for an open exploration of those values and understanding the different perspectives on on that. And uh, Absolutely. And, and I, again, when I came ahead and recruited my team, we talked a lot about wanting to have an approach to holistic education in our school because I have worked in schools where kids are literally reduced to being numbers and spreadsheets. And you're not talking about someone by name you're talking to their place in a, in a ranking or like what what percentage away they are from being in a different group and like like I think I think in some ways education's like dehumanized people and it's all about being an exams factory and getting results or getting mm. your Ofsted grade um and it's something we yeah we really thought about how could we pledge to not just pledge to, but like bring it to life, this idea of a holistic education and making sure that what happens in the curriculum is as important as what happens out of the curriculum. And Dr. Hill Norks, who's like the kind of the, the guru behind um, value based education, he he's written a couple of books about it. And he wrote this book about the inner curriculum. And it, I, I, it wasn't a term I'd used. And he came to visit me at my school. Um, I asked him to open one of our um, holistic rooms. So we had like an art therapy room and a Thrive room and some, just some different uh, sensory rooms and different spaces to help particular children. And he walked around the school and he just said, Hannah, like your school is my vision for an inner curriculum. And we, and we talked about it and I hadn't quite understood what he meant by the inner curriculum. But he said like children walk to that school gate at eight o'clock and what happens to them in the playground in assembly in the dining hall in the corridor in the toilets in tutor time like those bits are, aren't seen as being as important in some schools as what they get taught in their english lesson their math lesson their geography lesson but but if you think about the proportion of time that kids spend in school it, it, I, I don't, i'm not sure what the percentage is but it's probably like 40 60 or 55 45 of how much you spend in lessons learning and then what soft learning you do around that. And I just it's just again, it's just one of those interesting when people hold up a mirror to you and tell you what they see and you've not necessarily seen it in the same way. You're just doing what you think's right. And you've got a conviction to the fact that I used to say to the parents when they came to open evenings, like results are important, but they're not the be all and end all. Our school is not our exams factory. I want your kids to leave our school in five years' time, not only with decent results to open doors for the future, but I want them to be able to look someone in the eye, shake their hand, hold a conversation, use a knife and fork. And the parents would look at me like, who is this crazy lady? And I'd say, <laughs> I've, I've taught for 15 years, and I've sat next to 16-year-old boys who can't use a knife and fork in the dining hall. I'm embarrassed to be an educator with some of those life skills 
have have been lost and where children might have great results but they can't function as a human being and they don't know how they can contribute to society they don't have to open a bank account like it's yeah. like but those kind of like those basic basic things sex education like there's just so many pieces so we introduced um global citizenship as one of our in a curriculum subjects because there's so many statutory things you have to comply to as a school and they've all got letters and acronyms and it all becomes kind of like reduced down to a day here and, a, and an evening there and we I had a brilliant deputy head who had done a lot of work on this previously um she's actually now the head there and she wove it all together into this beautiful curriculum which we called global citizenship where PSHE and SMSC and SRE became meaningful and it became a fluid curriculum that built and developed and it was all values-based and the children valued it because they saw it as being a subject as opposed to this it being this kind of piecemeal wedging in all the pastoral and the holistic stuff and all the nurture when you've got a gap as opposed to like giving it true value and true meaning um and I want all the young people who leave schools to have a sense of who they are like that sense of identity and belonging and who they are in society that's so important um more now more than ever with everything that's going on um globally yeah well i mean that's the real purpose of education really isn't it yeah. beyond passing exams and i think a lot of the likewise in the work we do it's a lot about work and, and similar to you it's about working with the adults in the education system to kind of almost reframe their role as educators and mentors and elders to the young people and to the children and actually getting them to lead on a more holistic education. Um, I'm curious to ask, how does your vision for a, a you know, more nurturing, well-being focused education weave itself into that? You, you must be inside my head because that's where I was going to go next. So Jean, I've always been involved in sort of like mentoring and coaching um, early career teachers and um when I had that role running um, professional learning, I brought together a massive cohort of trainee teachers. Um, but it, it was interesting how different the offer or the entitlement was at a group of different schools for each of those trainees. So when I left headship and I went to work at a university and I was head of a secondary teacher training pathway, it was fascinating to think about which bits are um, statutory and compulsory for the trainees and mm -hmm. where have you got the scope and the freedom and like my point was like where how am I going to bring Hannah into this like what are the things I think are really important and I did a keynote about values I brought in pieces about gender equality I brought in pieces about diversity like all the things that I'm passionate about that are wrong in the system I saw it as a great opportunity to share with 450 trainee teachers who are going to go back to 450 different schools um, and I actually bumped into one of my old parents um, just whilst out in Oxford one day and she introduced me to her husband who I hadn't met before and she said this is Hannah like, she's left headship and we're all sad that she's left our school but she's going to go and impact 450 schools and I just thought that was a really interesting way to look at it as well that actually doing we can we can run one school and have big impact with a, with one community or we can go and help shape some of the policy and some of the kind of the training of whether it's a leadership course or whether it's early career teachers and think about how to have that kind of widen that sphere of influence um and like the trainees got it like they were they were all in their first year of teacher training some some had been working in schools for longer as unqualified and they were a bit mature but like I asked them to think about their values and like what had shaped them as individuals and how they show up in their work and then we related it to another session for well-being and another session for the role of the tutor and I and what I've begun to think about is the fact that 
we talk about our pledge to the whole child in schools but what about our pledge to the whole adult in schools and actually like we all have the right to be seen as a whole person and that idea of being role models but also being seen and being heard and being visible and like he said a second ago like bringing our whole self to work um because like i just when I, when I was trained to teach, I got told like not to smile for the first time and not to share any personal details. Like schools changed a lot since back then, um, <laughs> and I've always been a very authentic version of myself. Apart from swearing, that's the one thing I don't do in a school. Um, I, I I'm pretty much the same Hannah in a classroom with twelve year olds as I am with my family or with my friends. And I just kind of think like we need to be role modelling, like how to be comfortable in yourself. Um, so that's yeah, that's just another piece around giving people permission I guess to show up and and not not to be exerting energy and holding themselves back because from the research I've done and from the courses I've run around sort of like BAME and LGBT um, teachers when they're in a school whereby there are issues systemic issues institutionalized issues and they're pretending to be something they're not and they're hiding a part of their true identity in front of their children or in front of their, their colleagues. That's, that's an emotional labour there. Um, and that then really is detrimental to how they can perform in the classroom and how they can perform in the school. And it, and it damages their own resilience, their own sense of well-being and their own sense of self-worth. So just to get that message out there about, like, just be proud of who you are and find the right school where your values are aligned to the culture you're choosing to work in schools are different don't be naive about that and it was interesting because all of my trainees were employed so it wasn't like they were going to look to apply for jobs they they were already um in employment and i definitely disrupted some of their thinking and some of them realized that they weren't in the right school because when i asked them to think about their values and how their values showed up in the culture around them and were they aligned you could see that penny drop that actually some of them realized they were in the wrong context for example, my deputy head, when I was a head, um, she was an Asian woman, she was bisexual, and she'd worked in um, schools for like 14 years where she'd never revealed her sexuality um, to her community before because she didn't feel it was safe to do so. She felt it would be judgment from the parents, from the staff, from the children. Um, and diversity was one of our 12 core values at our school. And um, how we did our assemblies was we had like a value for a month and we had a weekly assembly. So there's four opportunities to kind of like, unpack that value. Four different people were doing assembly. Um, and diversity was in November, I think, in our, in our first year of opening. And we'd been there for like eight, nine weeks. And she came to my office one day and she just said, I, I think I need to do the, the assembly. I was like, what are you on about? What's the assembly? She said, like, the assembly. I feel like I'm ready to do the assembly where I come out to the school and I talk to them about what it's like to be a bisexual Asian woman. Because although we're doing all this great work around diversity and inclusion in our school, I'm still getting upset when I hear homophobic comments. And I feel like if they know that those comments directly damage me and upset me, the children won't do it. But because they don't think there's anyone in our community who identifies in that way, they think they can get away with it. So is mm -hmm. it okay with you? Like, do I have permission to do that assembly? I was like, you don't need my permission. I said, you can do what you can do an assembly about whatever you want. I just want to make sure that you like, I don't need to feel under pressure to do it. So she did this assembly. And, oh my God. It was like one of the most powerful assemblies I've, I've ever been in. All the staff came. I'm, it makes me upset that like, I'm, I'm feeling upset just talking about it. Cause it was, it was one of those assemblies where she just delivered it in such a beautiful way. And all the children hung off every word. The staff were all like just there rooting for her. And following the assembly, a lot of the children hung back to shake her hand. 
and say, Mish, you were so brave. Mish, you were so courageous because one of our other values was courage. Um, you were so resilient. And they were using our other values as examples of what she just demonstrated. They then went home and told their families and she got letters and emails from parents who we didn't know were same-sex relationships, who hadn't felt safe in their community to come out and talk about it, and had told their son not to tell anyone they had two mums. And she got these beautiful emails from parents saying thank you. And it was just Amazing. like, one of, it was one of those moments where, like, for her whole career, she had been suppressing that part of who she was, and you could literally see this weight lifting. And I'm not saying that everyone out there who identifies as being LGBTQI+, should go and do that assembly right now mm-hmm. because it is about the timing and being in the right place at the right time and having that support around you but it, it really was an amazing learning point in our school to, to witness mm. and the permission that gives to others to speak their own truth and to speak their voice and their opinions and who they are and really live you know their lives in the way that they want to live yeah absolutely and that just that kind of sense of being authentic and and being seen for who you truly are and and being proud of who you are as well and doing we we always anticipated would end up with some trans students because we were the we were the first mixed school in the locality as a big girls school big boys school and if you were having identity um, things like that you'd probably end up going out of town and going to a different school so we always talked about it and all our staff were trained on it from the get-go but when the next year after that assembly we had we had a trans child come to our school then it wasn't an issue because we'd already sort of like sowed those seeds of the kind of school we were and how we treated each other and how we respected and accepted each other um, and similarly with all the kind of the language of um, British values and tolerance being a British value, like we we didn't subscribe to that. We talked about global human values, not British values, because not everyone in our school is British. Um, and also it's about humanity and not about Britishness. But also who wants to be tolerated? Like tolerance is not a nice thing to receive. You yeah. want to be accepted. You want to be seen. You want to be heard. You want to have a sense of identity and belonging. So we always talked about the language of acceptance rather than tolerance in our school as well. Um, and about everyone having equal value um, and there not being a kind of a hierarchy. Mm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's a really beautiful story. Thanks for sharing that. Um, That's right, pleasure. I'm curious how that links to the you know the work that you're doing with teacher training and it took a long time for her to feel the legitimacy to, to, to give that assembly. And I wonder how we, as a system, can encourage um, teachers to find their voice perhaps earlier in their in their journeys. I think I think that is happening naturally because I think as society changes, I, I was asked a question on a different call earlier on about, and it was a group of non-educators looking at um, a, a piece of gendered work, but we were talking about diversity, and they said to me, like, "What's it like in schools? Like, do, do children feel this?" And I was like, "No, hell no." I said, "If you think about the think from the next generation, the kind of the, the the primary school, the secondary school generations, the young people are much more." accepting and comfortable and fluid and they don't use labels and like everyone's seen as being individuals I I feel like actually that's exciting to see those young people come up the system um for the kind of the early career educators there are a lot more opportunities these days because of the grassroots movements like women ed's five years old bay meds four years old lgbt ed's three years old like you get welcomed into those communities if you're on social media and you find them um and I think there's now 
more peer support perhaps and there's more opportunities to network with people who have been there and done it and share the personal narratives as well as the professional because I do think when I was a trainee and when I was moving up the ladder all the networks were formal networks that were professional they were around what position you held or what subject you taught um they weren't about me being a woman or or, or me being a mother um so I feel like those grassroots communities have given a lot of voice and agencies um, they also give permission, but they also give the support and the learning and share the wisdom. And there's a real sense of um, those pioneers, those trailblazers who have broken through the glass ceilings, the concrete ceilings. They are very much wanting to pay it forward and pass it on um, and make things a little bit easier for those people who follow them. Um, so there's a lot of mentoring and coaching and just people being very generous with gifting their wisdom and experience and expertise to other people to perhaps just cushion it a little bit for them in the future. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, uh, we are definitely seeing that shift in as generations come through in, you know, even social media and the expression that is, you know, how young people express themselves through social media now is so different to how even when I was um, in school, which, you know, making videos, recording, you know, there's much more creative expression in social media now than there was when I was, it was more digesting when I was using it as a, as a teenager. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And, and it's like, it's five different ways to express yourself, isn't it? Because not everyone wants to be vocal. Um, like I know vlogging and blogging are, are massive, but you might want to, do a piece of art or, or produce a piece of music or there's, there's different ways like kind of that self-expression around who you are um and then how you also connect with and find people who are kindred um spirits i think is is different as well so no, it is interesting mm-hmm. um it's still there's still a lot to be done there's still a lot to be done from a kind of a community cohesion point of view um but I feel like things are moving in the right direction, just perhaps a little bit slower than I'd like. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, it's interesting the diversity piece because you know, if you look in nature around us, diversity is inherent in the health and the flourishing of all the systems. And it's so, you know, look at a forest and all the ancient forests, it's the diversity of those forests that keep them resilient and healthy through and to weather the storms and weather difficult uh, climate changes etc i was curious to ask you and uh, kind of maybe calling back to the spirituality piece you can uh, you mentioned earlier around uh, having your daily writing challenge uh, i was curious to ask what are the practices that you have in your life that you find support you most it's a really interesting question so i've been talking about this a lot with people in the last few weeks so when lockdown happened i was thinking about like what could i do to help people because i'm used to being in a school and serving others and i'm, I'm not in a school and I, f- I felt a little bit guilty that i wasn't doing enough so the daily writing challenge was one of those things but i also set up a series of peer support circles so i basically run a coaching circle every night for like six people predominantly women but i've got some men and some of them as well and we've talked a lot about self-care we've talked a lot about rituals um because our lives are so routined and there's lots of things we feel like we have to do um and in those first couple of weeks there was a lot of stress and a lot of emotionality and dream people were getting frustrated with themselves they weren't being kind or self-compassionate to themselves because they felt like the things that had always worked weren't working and I just asked them to think about the fact that, that that's in your normal existence and those things that serve you when you're doing your nine to five and you've got a commute and you're with people all day, they they balance you out in that environment. But our 
our context has changed. So thereby our self-care toolkit needs to change. So we've talked a lot about different daily practices and different rituals that kind of nourish us. And my one is very much every morning I get up and I write. Um, I drink lots of water. I eat well. I'm a vegetarian, so I eat well. Um, I love a bath. I love candles. Like They're all quite simple things going for walks. But I haven't got a lot of stress in my life at the moment. I mean, when I, when I was working in schools and when I was a school leader, I needed different rituals and daily practices then. Um, I'm not someone who's really ever suffered with kind of confidence issues, but I know that a lot of people I work with, like daily affirmations really work. Um, and just reminders of who you are and ways to celebrate and project who you are rather than the inner critic and the imposter syndrome sort of like um, sort of nipping in. I I reach out to people, so do you mean I'm I'm, a, I'm also a talker and a listener, and I share how I'm feeling. I don't sort of like suppress it and let, wait for it to explode. Um, but we've talked a lot in the last few weeks as well about the fact that as humans and particularly as educators, we're used to being in an environment that's very social, and we're used to co-regulate each other all the time. When you have a bad day in a school, you have your teacher buddy and you go into their classroom or their office and you shut the door and you have a cry or you have a hug or you have a swear and you get out your system and then you regroup and you go back out again. Mm -hmm. And I I think some teachers have struggled with the fact that they are trapped in their homes, but those people and techniques they normally use for co-regulation aren't there, but they perhaps don't realise how reliant they are on them or they don't, perhaps they even see them as being co-regulation. They just see it as, I go and chat to my friend every day. Um, so we've talked quite a lot about um, self-regulation and how we need to consciously make that shift from relying on others or we need to co-regulate in a different way. But it's quite hard to co-regulate people via Zoom on a laptop, for example, because that human connectivity is different when you're with someone. So that's just some of the things. I think I think awareness and reflection are quite big for me. Um, and, and I think I've probably got them through the coaching. Um, and by just doing lots of the coaching and being like doing that work on my values, I feel like actually those things hold me when I am stressed or tired or overwhelmed or well-being, which doesn't happen very often. I feel like I've got those things to kind of draw on. Mm, thank you. Makes me think of the Nietzsche quote that says, uh, he who has a why can bear almost any how. Oh, I love that. I don't know that quote. That's great. <laughs> yeah, if we have a reason, if we know why we're doing something, if we're really clear about our intention and... Uh, our purpose and our meaning it gives us huge amounts of resilience and motivation and um, helps us show up regardless of what what's in front of us well indeed so you're making me now think of Brene Brown who talks about how we show up and embrace vulnerability which I think I do quite well um and the, the why and the how bit makes me think of Simon Sinek and that kind mm. of articulation of what you're doing and why you're doing it um and that also makes me think of the Kigai and the kind of the Venn diagram of your purpose and thinking about your mission and your vision and and your purpose and like I do, I do one of the things I do every year. Um, I'm not sure where it came from. I think it's American. There's this hashtag in January every year called One Word, where you pick a word for the year as your kind of like your north star. And I've done it for like five or six years. Um, and my word three years ago was change, and I then resigned and I relocated. <laughs> and I didn't in January anticipate either of those two things happening. This year, um, my word was purpose. Um, and when just having that one word, and I always choose a value word, I kept going back to it in January and February, and just thinking, like, 
am I serving my purpose in my current role? Like, I'm quite happy being a teacher trainer, but is is it like is it what I'm meant to be doing? And that's when I did the kind of the self exploration about you know I feel like there's something different or more that I can give, and that's why I resigned from that role because for a lot of people that role would have been their perfect role, and they would have absolutely sort of like loved me and I enjoyed it, but it wasn't lighting my fire. Um, and I think that just re- being really clear on your purpose, your why, um, your mission, your vision, your values, it, that's so it's so important for a sense of self fulfillment, which then amplifies your well-being and makes you resilient because all those things are in harmony with each other yeah yeah totally well hopefully this uh, time of um perhaps a slower pace of life for for many will give people a chance to tune into their why their their word their purpose i'd hope so <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty much all we've got time for but i want to end with a, a question we're asking everyone on the show who comes onto the show what is a book that you've come back to most throughout your life or that has it helped you most in your life? See, that's interesting. As an English teacher and an avid reader, I don't ever read books twice. So, <laughs> I mean, a lot of people have their favourite book or that favourite film. And I think there's so many books I want to read. Why would I reread a book? But I have read a lot more non-fiction um, over the last few years. And there's there's a couple of books I really recommend for different reasons. Like my favourite book as a teenager was I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings by Maya Angelou. And I, I love Maya Angelou's writing. Um, and I go back to Maya Angelou, not, not necessarily that book, but I go back to her as just someone who's got such a sense of gravitas and clarity about who they are. And then alongside that, it would be the kind of the Brene Brown work around authenticity and vulnerability. So I think I'd probably go back to people and thought leadership and quotes as opposed to a book per se i haven't got one book that i kind of carry around me that's all sort of like thumbed because i keep going back to it but i think they're two they're they're kind of books that i hold with me amazing thank you very much my pleasure thank you for having me great yeah thanks for coming on the show and uh well i'll put in the show notes all the things we've references that we've spoken about for our listeners um but as well yeah thanks again for giving us the time and and I hope you enjoy the rest of the lockdown experience that we've got in front of us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much, everyone, for tuning in to this episode. We hope you found this conversation as fruitful as we did. In order to keep in touch with the work that Max and I do in The Visionaries, feel free to check out our website, www.thevisionaries.org.uk. Have a beautiful day. See ya.